This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored welcome everyone to trek fm's dedicated books and comic show this is episode 150 and i've got to say i when i started this with chris way back in the day i guess it's four years ago now i had no idea where this would go and how this would turn up. And the fact that we made it to episode 150 is just incredible. And I just want to take this opportunity to say a huge thank you to everyone who has supported the show, has listened. And my biggest thanks, honestly, not only to the listeners, but to the authors who have made this show. Because I think... That's what makes Literary Trek special is not when you just get to hear from us talking about something, but when you actually get to have the creator on your show to talk about where and how and why they chose to do what they did in their story and the way that it personally impacts them. There's just there's nothing like it. And so uh, all of that together has made this one of the coolest experiences to have uh, for me in podcasting. And so I just wanted to say a huge thank you to you guys. and. Got a huge show for tonight. We're going to do something completely different. Um, there's no news segment tonight because we're actually going to have an interview tonight. But before we get that, everybody knows that I am joined by my good friend, Dan Gunther. Hey, Matthew. Uh, really excited to be here tonight. Really special episode, like you say. Uh, something we've never done before. So, you know, really, really excited to be here tonight. How are things where you're at? They're great, Dan. You know, I've been practicing my spoken word just like Shatner. I think everybody's going to love what we have in store for him. So I'm so excited to get to that point of the show. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I am so excited because, Bruce, you're back with us here and you're here on the 150th episode, man. Welcome back. I know. This is exciting. I kept thinking, wow, the ready room had Larry Nemechek and you have me. I, uh, that's kind of an honor right there. <laughs> I know. I've got you and Dan, and we're welcoming a special guest tonight. Wait, there's a fourth Everybody person Everybody knows what? him here. Yeah, special guest. It's this crazy. This show is growing. He's here. Some bounds. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's crazy. We've actually got four people on here tonight, and it's going to be a blast because a good friend of ours here from the network, he has become an author himself, and we wanted to get the opportunity to interview him about his 
latest work. And so I want to welcome to the show back. I mean, it took us so long after those Voyager comics. I thought he was done with us. Uh, but apparently not even Tuvok's remedial school for badasses could keep him away. Tristan Riddell. <laughs> I, I had completely forgotten about that show. About the Voyager comics, those were so bad. <laughs> they were so bad. <laughs> <laughs> so bad. Voyager should not be in comic form if those are what we judge them by. Uh, thank you so, thank you so much for having me on. And I don't, <laughs> I think uh, calling me an author is is quite generous. So I, <laughs> I thank you very much for that. It's, uh, I think, uh, a longtime blowhard and podcaster who's in love with his, the sound of his own voice writes a short story i think that's the title that probably should go with hey hey all i know is that we've got the first audiobook from star trek <laughs> in quite a long time coming up for everybody that's the special thing that's coming up i just blew it guys <laughs> everybody in our feature tonight tristan has put together an audio version of his story that he did for strange new worlds and him and his wife, the girl, put that together for us. It's got sound effects. It's got some music. It's fantastic. I think it's going to be really special for you guys to be able to listen to. So mm. I don't know. If, if that doesn't make you an author, I don't know what does. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that. It was a lot of fun to do. It was, it was, um, I, I love audiobooks. And I, some of the, I think the first audiobook I ever listened to, uh was actually it wasn't I, I guess it's technically not an audiobook but the first thing i listened to in that format was old uh tos vinyl records of uh what what were those called like it, it was it was like short stories was it like uh, power records i think it was called power records it had the book yeah yeah them? it was it, yeah it was the power records one it was like um one about like an, an asteroid coming and one where they uh, all turn into cats or something and it's uh, it was fantastic. Like and like, uh, I think uh, uh, my sister's boyfriend, high school boyfriend, got them for me at a garage sale, and I just listened to them constantly on 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 the turntable. And ever since then, like the I've listened to more Star Trek audiobooks than I have any other type of audiobook. And I have a long commute, so I listen to a lot of audiobooks. I I feel like there are a lot of authors out there that write Star Trek books now that are writing down the idea where they turn into cats <laughs> and trying to turn that into a longer story. So just hoping that happens because yeah, we visited Catopia. <laughs> Keith DeCandido is listening to this going, "Oh man, they stole my idea." <laughs> as we venture forth into the giant litter box also known as the Sahara Desert. <laughs> Well, Tristan, let's let's reel this back um, in the sense that talk about and tell us how you became a Star Trek fan. Like what got you in to Star Trek and kept you going for all these years so that you would get to the point where, you know, I think I want to write a Star Trek story and, and submit it to Strange New Worlds. Well, it's, uh, you know, I've been a part of the network for so long that I, I feel like, uh people might get tired of the story, but the, that's the beauty of all these different shows that I'm on is that it's a different audience almost every single time. And I, uh, I, w I was practically born a Star Trek fan. I was born in uh, 1986. And uh, as we all know, TNG came out in 87. And my mom sat me up as, a, as an infant 
uh, to watch these episodes from 1987 on. My my uncle was over. So that's what happened. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that is so much more sense now. That is exactly what happened. Yeah, my my uncle was stationed overseas. He was in the military. And so he didn't have access to TNG, and he's a big Star Trek fan. And so what we would do is we rec- we would record every single episode on VHS and then send him a care package every single month with all these episodes and, you know, cookies and whatnot. And so I, I was just bred to be one. And my, my mom constantly tells me, she's like, I had no idea what I was getting you into when I sat you on my lap in the 80s. So kind of like a Jem Hadar, you didn't really have a choice. I didn't have a choice. It was programmed into me, and uh, thus I am a fanatical towards uh, the Changelings. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, going through, you know, as you went, uh, grew up, what kept you going in, in Star Trek? Like, what made you, you know, because uh, if you grow up in religion, you kind of have to have a, that point where you make it your own. Mm-hmm. But Star Trek are, are, are things that your parents like. You, you have to have that same kind of renaissance for yourself of, of what actually makes you choose to stay with that thing that has been around you for so long. That's really funny that you mentioned that, Matt, because I, I think I once made that comparison onto the journey about how when, when you grow up, you like, you know, like you know, pe- people of faith uh, can relate to that decision where, yeah, you're raised in the faith, but then there comes a time when you have to go, okay, this is no longer my father's religion, this is my religion. And I kind of had, I had that moment at 12 years old when I got baptized. And then I ha- also had that moment around the same time where I was just like, wow, I'm just going to throw myself into Star Trek because it was right around the was time. Was that your come to Janeway moment? That was my come to Janeway <laughs> moment was was around, because around that time, Deep Space Nine was on the air, Voyager was on the air, TNG just finished. Well, not just finished, but, you know, finished a couple of years ago. And it was, um, it was this, I mean, I was, since I was born in the mid 80s, I was, I, I, I was in the, I was, my childhood was the heyday of Star Trek. You know, I was, I, I grew up on TNG and had DS9 at the same time. When TNG left, I had DS, DS9 and Voyager. When DS9 left, I had Voyager and Enterprise. And then, so I didn't have, I didn't have a, a gap of Star Trek until everybody else did in 2005, right? 2005? Uh, was when Enterprise went off the yeah, air. Yeah, I think that's right. And so it was just, I mean, I was just bombarded with it. You know, like I, I, I latched onto it with TNG and then they just kept coming out with great material that connected with me. And uh, then around that time, I think I started, you know, throwing myself into um, into the ancillary materials, like, you know, like the encyclopedias and uh, the the computer games and the comics and the books. I just started just gobbling up everything that I could and one of my favorite things I ever got was a collection of Seven of Nine scripts where they were like the best Seven of Nine episodes in script form. And I, I, I bought it immediately just because it had Star Trek on it. And I, that's what got me into uh, writing, really, was after reading that those scripts, I, I realized how it was formatted. I was like, oh, this is what the actor reads. This is This is the format that they do it in. And so I started copying that as much as I could, and I started writing my own, my own plays, uh, my own, um, my own TV episodes, and my own movie scripts, and everything like that. And I just, uh, I just didn't stop. Very cool. It's, uh, yeah, it's interesting. Like it sounds very similar to uh, my experience growing up. Like I was born in '82, so you know I'm not that much older than you. And yeah, same thing. You're just inundated by it, mm-hmm. and uh, you know. And like you, yeah, the only gap I got when was in 2005. So yeah, I totally relate to that. That's really excellent. 
I wonder kind of specifically for this story, like entering the Strange New Worlds contest, how did that come about and, and what uh, what was that process like? Well, it was uh, it was announced in October of 2015, so uh, of, uh, just uh, last fall from when we're recording this, and I just I don't know. I just I I, I you know, it, like Strange New Worlds was dormant for a while, and then they brought it back. And we all know about the Dayton wards of the world, you know, where you know, like a lot a lot of people got their start through Strange New Worlds, and you know, like Star Trek is known for finding people who have no representation or who haven't written before, but submit a fan script, you know, like, uh, you know, like we've, we've seen that on TNG and Voyager and Deep Space Nine where, you know, fans submit scripts and they're like, hey, come on, be a writer. And then we hear about Dayton Ward who, you know, won a couple of times and then they're like, hey, you're, you know, you, you're a great writer, you know, like here, here's some, uh, like do some novels for us. And I just, uh, when the contest came about, I, I was itching to do something not a part of my job like something that pays the bills where i i work in the creative industry i I work in marketing and so i'm very lucky where (laughs) a big portion of my job is creative where i get to write or edit or shoot or produce uh video material or audio material or everything like that but it's still work you know like it's still i'm still getting paid to do it i still have clients that i have to appease and everything like that um but when you write when you write a, a novel or a script or a short story or whatever, it's just for you. You know, like it's it's really, yeah, you're thinking about an audience and you're thinking about how people are going to perceive it, but it really is just for you. There's no clients hanging over your head saying, change this word or don't split an infinitive. You know, it's not to boldly go, it's to go boldly, come on. Uh, you know, like <laughs> everything like that, you know, no one's doing that to you. And so I just, uh, I went to my co-host, Charlene Schmidt from To The Journey. I said, we should do this. You know, like we keep talking about writing. Let's shut up and just do it. And she's like, okay, so let's do it. And I uh, put it off like a good writer until the last minute. And I, uh, I went and I, I, my, my, I was visiting my parents and my mom brought it up and said like, hey, are you going to enter that contest? And I was like, ah, it's probably too late now. It's in two weeks. You know, like I, I just, I probably don't have enough time to, to do it. And she said, no, you have to do it. It's, 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 you're going to have fun. You're going to regret it if you don't. Just do it. I said, okay. So I did. I went home that night and I just wrote. I just wrote. Yeah, but what started you with the idea of the story? Because now you're sitting there going, I've got two weeks to write something. And bam, where do you start? How did you know to go to a DS9 story? (laughs) Well, I think the thing is is that yeah voyager guy explain that one <laughs> it's 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 so funny because everybody thinks that voyager is my favorite show because i host a uh, uh, a voyager podcast and i thought that was so... the only show you watched was voyager <laughs> people get so disappointed when i tell them that it's not my favorite show like like they like like i i like meet these hardcore voyager fans and they're just like they're, they like they start to tr- trash talk some other shows and i'm just like actually you know you know what i think like either tng or ds9 depending on the day is my favorite show they're like why would you say that why would you admit that to me <laughs> um but i i don't know As, you're a false guy yeah, exa- <laughs> you're a phony <laughs> um i'm never yeah, listening it's, to it's, that show again 
<laughs> I know. Uh, no, it's a good show. No, uh, yeah, it's. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm... here's the backpedaling now. <laughs> no, no, no. Voyager uh, is uh, no. It's uh, Voyager solid. And uh, do you know what's even more solid? Uh, Voyager Through the is journey. so cool. I just yes. love it. It's my favorite. <laughs> Please listen. Don't stop listening. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm one of those guys who constantly has at least fifteen to twenty stories in his head as any at any given time. Uh, whether it's uh, whether it's a five-page story or a six-volume novel, you know, I feel like so many of us. I mean, whether you're creatives or not, whether you're a writer or not, I feel like everybody has these little stories in their in the, in their brain. Whether it's just a story of that girl that you met on the bus that you're like, oh, that would make a good story. I need to retell that in some form. Or it's that story of that that epic family who rose from you know southern Louisiana and then rose to prominence and became a political powerhouse. You know, like it's we all have these stories constantly in our heads and. One that I had for a very long time was, I always asked the question, why, why is there only male Jim Hadar? So many of this, the species in the animal kingdom, the most aggressive sex is the female sex. And if you want somebody, if you want to create an aggressive race of super soldiers, why wouldn't you investigate uh, the female aspect? And that that is a story that's always been in my head and so actually when star trek online first came on i uh and you found out that you could um you could play as a klingon you in the klingon section i found out that somebody created a you somebody found out a way that you could create a jimadar by customizing an alien and i was like oh sweet okay i'll go ahead and do that and then i was like oh wait i wonder if anybody's thought of this and i created a female jimadar in star trek on, online and i called her omega because I thought it was a nice play on words because, you know, the the people are always called first. And I was like, well, you know, like, I don't want to call him first and I don't want to call him alpha. And since she's a female and she probably be, would be rejected by the rest of the Jemadar society and the founder society. So let's call her Omega. And so that was a story that was just kind of always there. And she was uh, every time I logged in, which wasn't that often uh, with Star Trek Online, she was always there. And so she's always kind of been with me and... Um, when I sat down to write, I was just like, yep, that's, that's the story I'm going to write. I'm going to write about her. Um, but then I found out, I read the rules more carefully and you could not have a new character to be your protagonist in strange new world. And I was, I was, I was, I was just forlorn. I was just so disappointed because I, I was so jazzed about writing the story. And I was like, but, but I want to tell this story about this character. And so that's when I was like, okay, well, what do I do? Who do I make it about? And I was like, well, obviously it's going to be Deep Space Nine story because it's Jemadar. And you know, I said, like, who could I focus it around? And I needed Julian to be the framing device. I needed him to be the protagonist. I needed to see it through his eyes. And I cheated, you know, like because there there's multiple scenes in the story that are from different people's perspectives, but. Julian is always the constant. He is always the one gaining the information, receiving the information, or giving it to uh, to to his superiors. And I, I chose him because I always thought that Julian was a very underrated character. I feel like he uh, he had a lot of growth throughout the series, and you know he was kind of like Kira, where Kira snuck in a fantastic arc uh, throughout the show, and I, I think that's very underrepresented. And I think Julian had enough bravado and enough interest in alien species that he would kind of be the go-to guy because I didn't want it to be just about Miles as well, even though Miles um, relates 
to the um, to the female Jemadar, which I've named last. Uh, I, I did that because one of my favorite relationship in Deep Space Nine is Miles and Julian. Why wouldn't you want to write for those characters? Why wouldn't you want to write the them playing darts or going to Quarks or working together? You know, like that's just that's just candy. And so that was um, that was a big reasoning why I chose that as a framing device. And I kind of once I chose that, I worked backwards where I I was like, okay, we have a female Jemadar that links back to Julian. And Julian links to Miles O'Brien, and Miles and Julian are together. So, you know, like uh, in in this story. So, when is this? And I was like, well, what about season four? That way, I can have a wharf reference. And what happened in season four? Oh, well, holy crap! A lot happened in season four, and and then I remembered the Jemadar storyline with Garanagar. And so I just I did I just started working backwards in the timeline and finding all these connections and bringing it back because. I always, we never saw Grenegar die. We never, we never, he, he walked into the jungle and then we never heard about him again. And I love those stories because it just plays with our imagination. I mean, this is, this is the basis. Uh, I'm talking for a long time. Uh, this is the basis of what Star Trek fiction is about, like with comics and books and everything like that. We always, it's a joke within the community where it's just like, oh, I ever wonder, I wonder what happened to that character. Somebody always goes, oh, I bet there's a novel about it. You know, and so and 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 that's the thing. I think that's what kind of drove me is that not only can I tell a great tale about the one of the best friendships in all of Star Trek, I can introduce a new character while also tying it back and buttoning up a story of I think a very underrated um, guest character for Granigar. Well, and not only that, but this also takes place during another episode of season four, which would be Hard Time, which uh, is about Miles O'Brien. And about how he uh, was sentenced to espionage in this other planet, and he had like twenty years of experience of being a prisoner by himself, and so mm-hmm. that's tied into this too. So you really have two episodes that you're kind of volleying between in this time yeah. period. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was um, it was a lot to draw from. I was I was scared that it was going to be a little too convoluted, and that I was um, dealing with too much history. You know, because when you make a story like this, you want to you want it. People, you want people to pick it up and not necessarily have to have watched those episodes to understand what's going on. Now, obviously, it's a Star Trek short story, so you need to have at least some basis of knowledge about the show. But I, I felt like there were ways to summarize it quickly of what happened, where like you know, like the the chief medical's officer's log and the captain's log and everything like that. Those are great exp- built-in exposition devices in the Star Trek community and and, in Star Trek lore is that if you ever want to give anybody information, you do a log and nobody thinks you're cheating. Like if if that happened in like a a Mad Men episode where all of a sudden Don Draper opens up the episode and he's just talking about what happened in the previous week, people will be like, okay, that's weird. That's expositional. Why are you, you know, like, why do you keep calling your sister sister? You know, like what just call her by her name, you know? And so that, that helped a lot. And it's just, uh, yeah, I think um, it, 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 when I ask myself, you know, like, should I do this? Should I just focus on one? Should I just focus on on uh, a few more or anything like that? It kind of was the question of why not? You know, like, y- you can do whatever you want. I'm not in a writer's room. It's just me. And so I was like, let's let's draw as much as I can throughout the series. Tell everybody who doesn't know 
just what the process is for, you know, uh, creating the story, submitting the story, kind of what those rules are, and then how long did you end up having to wait to find out, you know, whether you had gotten accepted or not? Oh, geez. Um, uh, well, the, the whole process is, it was very easy. It was a very, very easy process. They made it very, I have to hand it to them. They made it very easy to submit. Uh, it was, uh, all you had to do was just label a Word document a specific way. You had to make sure it was in a specific word count. And then just email it. It's just to like email it to this address with your name and whatever underneath. And that's it. It was submitted. You get a confirmation email saying, yep, we got it. You're good. Talk to you in months. Um, I can't, I think. So yeah, I submitted it. I, I, I am horrible with dates rushing. You know this. Um, I submitted it, I think, in at the end of February or and uh, somewhere around in there. And... And then they didn't, they said that they weren't going to get back to us until the end of April, something like that. So it wasn't that long. It was just a couple of months. And, you know, when you're reading this, this, min, this much content, you got to give them enough time. And the thing that sucked, though, is that if you look at the language, it said something like on or around April 15th. Wait, tax day? So you're like, <laughs> you're waiting for hopefully good news and or bad news on the same day you may have to owe the IRS <laughs> 450 bucks? Oh, it, it like, and, and people are probably screaming uh, at their at their iPhones right now because I'm getting the dates all wrong. I, 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 I'm horrible with dates. But it was, yeah, it was just a couple of months that, that you had to wait. But that was, that was, that's what really sucked is that it said on or around this, this specific date. So the date came and nobody got any information whatsoever on whether or not their story got submitted and so people were going on forums people were going on websites saying have you heard have you heard have you heard and everyone was like nope 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 i think two weeks went by they were two weeks past the date that they said that they would acknowledge you and then they finally released it online and sadly i was not accepted and i'm sure people are going whoa 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 why are you on literary treks right now <laughs> what's going on well it's a surprise to me too but i'm i'm glad that you guys liked it well, and I, I think what was so interesting, though, about this is that, you know, like you said at the beginning, this is something that Star Trek has been doing since the beginning, uh, for the most part, you know, bringing people in, uh, bringing fans in, especially Next Generation really began that process to try their hand at creating stories and writing because... I, it, Star Trek is one of the few places where I think they realize that the fans are a huge benefit, you know, um, and they know the stuff. They love the stuff. So let's have them write the stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're not always great. And those are the ones we don't hire. But those that are, we keep them around. And, and I think that that's a really cool thing that they give people the opportunity to be creative, do something they love, and basically, you know, you get picked to be put in the best fan fiction of them all. You know, you're actually published in something. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not just on a forum. It's, and I think that's a really neat thing. And even though your story wasn't chosen, I thought to myself that this would be the coolest way to celebrate 150 episodes of Literary Trek. Because as you said, our first guest, Dayton Ward, started in this process. Mm -hmm. And... This is what it's all about, is us celebrating something that we've all loved for a very long time. None of us around been around for 50 years, uh, but w the show has. And 
hopefully Star Trek itself will continue on long after we're gone. Mm-hmm. And we're just kind of a small part of that. And I think that's a really neat thing. Um, and I think one of the things that I liked about your story was the originality of asking a question that why aren't there any Jim Hart women? And what I liked is that it had this really cool, almost like secret super soldier aspect to it, almost like Captain America-ish. Like they're trying to create even better Jim Hadar than they already have, you know? Like, eh, they're just the basics. You know, we really want the the elite ones. And, and they, they, they finally went with, uh, you know, the female of the species. And I just thought, this is fascinating. So well done, man. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Yeah, it was... Uh... I, I didn't even really think about about that bit. I, I do I do love that stuff. I mean, it, it's clear that that kind of Captain America, secret super soldier, Jason Bourne has, you know, like has influenced me. You know, like you don't e- you don't even realize what influences you until uh, you after you're done or till somebody else brings it up. You're just like, oh, yeah, I totally am a big fan of that. You're like, yeah, I'm, <laughs> that's why that snuck in. Well, one of the things that we uh, we did with Dayton. Uh, when he was on uh, just last episode was to ask, you know, this is the 50th anniversary of Star Trek. Mm -hmm. So if you were going to recommend five books to people, Star Trek wise, and they can even be audio books that you've liked, what five would you say, you know what, you like Star Trek, try these five audio books to see if you also like the lit verse. Hmm. Uh, It's going to be, it's going to be very boring uh, because this is one of those times where even even though I love um, TNG and Deep Space Nine and everything like that, I think Voyager books are some of the best Star Trek books out there. I absolutely love them. I, I think if I could recommend it right away, like, and I'll recommend them uh, in audiobook form because that's how I got introduced to Star Trek literature. Uh, Caretaker, it was... Uh, in audiobook form is fantastic read by Robert Picardo if I am remembering correctly and then you have uh, I think my favorite Star Trek book of all time Star Trek Mosaic which is about Janeway's past and that's read by Kate Mulgrew you can't get any better than that that's absolutely fantastic and then you have Star Trek Pathways which is my second favorite Star Trek book of all time which tells us the backstory of every other Star Trek Voyager character besides Janeway, because Janeway got her own book, and that's read by Robert Picardo as well. And I, what, <laughs> I guess I'm, I think Shatner's uh, biographies, the Star Trek movie memories, or, or or whatever that was called, that in audiobook form was really great. I think that's four. Um, and of course, Litter Nimoy's. Uh, I, I kind of count. I'm Spock, and I'm not Spock as one. Uh, that that is something that I think ever those those two like the Star Trek movie memories by Shatner and Nimoy's two books about being Spock and not being Spock. I think every Star Trek fan should listen to and read because it's read by Shatner and it's read by Nimoy and it's uh Frakes is also a fantastic Star Trek narrator. He is um he does more than a few audiobooks out there and uh, I know I gave, already gave my top five, but something else that people should look into is uh. John Delancey's old company called um, Alien Voices, where they would do radio dramas, and the best one of all time, hands down, I, I still listen to it this day, is Spock and Q, 
where they have a philosophical debate in front of a live audience and they made it it was so successful that it made a sequel it it's they are fantastic they will they will leave you in stitches because they are so funny oh man those are really really great recommendations and you kind of make up for your betrayal of voyager earlier (laughs) (laughs) recommendations well and and then i i think that heck we'd recommend you read anything by kirsten buyer here voyager wise so i mean just fantastic well tristan uh we are about to jump into the feature where you and the girl read the story so uh before we do that just tell us a little bit about uh producing your own audiobook uh this was a this was a lot of fun because i've always wanted to do this i i've always wanted to like if 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 you could choose an industry that you could just walk into and then you know <laughs> be successful at one of them definitely would be voice acting. I I did uh, I I did some of that in in college and I've done some of that in side projects and obviously I love to talk because you know I'm doing this right here right now and I because I listen to audiobooks so much I'd be like I can I can do that you know like I want I want to do that and so. When you rushing, when you ca- like Chekhov, I could do this. I could do I this. I could do that. I can do that. Um, and rushing, when you came to me and you you said, "Hey, let's let's do this," I said, "I was like, well, how? What do you want? Do you just want me to to talk to talk about it? Do you want me to read it?" And you're like, "Yeah, you know, read it. Maybe we can add in a little bit of music." And I just took that and just ran with it. I was like, "Okay, cool." He gave me permission to do whatever I want, and so I added music and sound effects, and I was like, "It would it would be even cooler." If I got my wife to play the protagonist and uh, excuse me, not the protagonist, it's uh, the, the female protagonist um, in case Strange New Worlds is listening. Oh, wait, they didn't pick me. Screw you. So, yeah. So it's the protagonist. <laughs> um, and uh, my my wife, my wife and I actually met in acting class. And so this is something that we've always wanted to to do together um, in audio form because we've uh, we've acted together before. And so this was just like going back in time and. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, it, I took me, it just took me about a day, you know, it just took me about a, a day to do. And I went online and I found, like, I, I just went through the script and just started going through and marking where I thought music should go and putting in SFX, wherever sound effects needed to go. And then I took the script and then went online and went to, I think like free soundeffects.net or something like that. Just typed in a descriptor word and then found the best one, downloaded it and popped it into the editor. And then there you have it. Well, I hope everybody will enjoy The Last Will Be First. The Last Will Be First by Tristan Riddell. Read by... Tristan Riddell, and the girl. Last. That would be her name. Not one that she was given, not a rank that was bestowed upon her, a name of her choosing. For too long she was referred to as GH1512. For too long she was bolted to the floor. Too long she was conditioned for combat, but never released. They feared her, and she knew that. She could see it in their eyes, and practically smell it on their breath. The type of fear that permeated the air around her when they loomed over her like the gods they swore to protect. Gods. Deep inside, programmed even, 
That's what she was told to believe they were. They made her, and now they abandon her. Who do you worship when God has rejected you? She heard something, an alarm that she had never heard before. It pierced through her daily silence, bouncing and echoing off the walls. Through the darkness, she could hear the guards move away from the door. She felt the footfalls through the floor thumping at a rushed pace. For years, this was the only sound she would hear, that and the sliding of her dinner plate under the door. Occasionally, when they opened the door to inspect her, she could peer through the opening and see color. She always remembered the days when she saw a new color. Suddenly, the door bulged with a loud bang behind it. Another convex shape appeared with an even louder pang of metal. The door opened with such fury, pieces bolted off and struck her skin. It didn't leave a mark. Violence never did. Once her eyes adjusted to the light, she looked up to an empty threshold. A shimmer of light manifested itself like vapor, and she thought she was delirious. Could it be the lack of food? Could it be the foreign commotion playing tricks on her? The shimmer turned into a figure standing in the doorway. This was no delusion. This was her moment. Chief Medical Officer's Log Chief O'Brien has just finished his 10th session of counseling after his simulated experience in an Argrathi jail cell. It's become routine for us to play a game of darts afterwards. Sometimes I feel like he might reveal more to me than his counselor. The smell of quarks was always something to get used to for Dr. Julian Bashir. The rich and pungent aroma of alcoholic drinks from dozens of cultures all mixed together could sometimes make his head spin. It wasn't just the way the little fingers of tangy intergalactic brews would sneak their way into his nostrils, but the sound hitting him as well. Quark's bar was an assault on the senses. Between people screaming Dabo in avarice exaltation every three minutes and the constant dropping of glasses, it was hard for the doctor to hear himself think. But that wasn't the point of Quark's. That's why he preferred the replimat with Garrick. It was quieter and more dignified than the constant flow of rabble that went to the bar. You could still see the movement of the station from the vantage point, though. At times, Deep Space Nine seemed to have its own breathing patterns. People from all over the quadrant were allowed into its tiny world, and were then exhaled back out to whatever adventure awaited them. All types of sentience came to Deep Space Nine, but seemed only a certain type made their way to Quarks. Quarks had a corner on the Hollow Suite market, but for right now, the only thing that mattered was the dartboard. The dartboard is where Chief O'Brien let his guard down. Maybe it was because his mind could focus on a task while he spoke instead of constantly analyzing his false memories. A hopeless person would have ended his life after what he went through. Thankfully, the good doctor was able to intervene before that happened. Ever since that moment they shared together, a renewed sense of dedication surged through their friendship. A sense of obligation and responsibility came with it as well. Bashir was the first to break the silence by the end of their second game. Care for another? I should really get back to work, Chief O'Brien said as he looked at the board and then out the door. I don't know about you, but I feel like another game, Julian exclaimed as he was already walking back to the board and plucking the darts out of their resting place. He pulled them one by one as he hit his words. You can't leave after beating me twice. Give me a chance to reclaim my honor. You take this too seriously, Julian, O'Brien scoffed with a smile. The chief walked back behind the designated line, and Julian handed over the darts. O'Brien was mid-throw when Bashir once again broke the silence. How was your session today? He asked with no form of pretense. 
Chief O'Brien hesitated a little and missed the mark completely. Do you see what you made me do? I knew you couldn't go one single game without bringing that up. Sometimes I just want to play darts, is that okay? I just got done with an hour of talking, nothing but talking. Sometimes I feel like that's all I do now. O'Brien breathed in quickly to release a sigh, but something changed his mind halfway through the action. His breath seemed to stay inside, instead of billowing out with his discomfort and exasperation with the young doctor. It's okay. We don't have to talk. We can just play darts. Like we always do. Thank you. I appreciate that. O'Brien over-enunciated his consonants as he lined up his next shot. What do you mean you feel like that's all I do now? Bashir asked, puzzled. Chief O'Brien caught himself before the release of his next dart to turn and look at Julian. All I do is talk now. I talk to you. I talk to the counselor. I talk to Keiko. I give oral reports to the captain so he can check up on me. I just want to do my job. I feel like I can't because I'm too busy talking. The only person who lets me do my job and not talk is... Odo. O'Brien paused to think of a prime example of someone who leaves him alone before he named the head of security. I bet a conversation with him about this would feel a hell of a lot longer than one with me, Julian joked, but then turned more serious. Twenty years is a long time to deal with the trauma of isolation. It wasn't twenty years, remember? It was twenty minutes. Miles' lips slowly curled as he faked what could resemble a smile. It doesn't matter how long it actually was, what matters is your perception of the event and how it impacted you," Julian exclaimed as if he has said this dozens of times. Julian's comm badge chirped with the voice of Captain Sisko. Before he swung his arm to his heart, he took a look at Miles. Please, let's not keep two people from working due to conversation, Miles pled as he threw the next dart. Julian tapped his comm badge and replied, Bashir here. Doctor, there's a situation that needs your attention in ops. The captain informed with his rich, pear-shaped tones. The captain always had a calming tone to his voice, no matter what the subject was. Except when he didn't. Is somebody hurt? Not yet. Because no one was hurt, Bashir didn't bring his medical kit. He rested his hands firmly on the railing in the turbo lift, gripping tighter than probably was necessary. The doctor always had apprehension when he came to ops when there wasn't a medical emergency. Why would you need a doctor in operation control if you didn't need medical expertise? He always automatically assumed he was in some sort of trouble, a habit he formed in primary school that he never seemed to be able to shake. Nervous about what was waiting for him when the lift rose to the top floor, all that apprehension melted away when he saw those blue eyes. Eyes to match the uniform, and spots that stood out on their own. Jedzia Dax looked up at him and winked. This gesture alone would have been enough to disarm him a few years ago. Today was different. Today he saw a large Klingon just behind her who looked up at him at the same time, but did not wink. Ever since Commander Worf came onto the station, Dax's attention had been elsewhere. If the doctor was honest with himself, her attention was always divided and never truly focused on him. She did, however, love the attention that he gave her. She always made sure never to outright tell him yes, but she paid even closer attention to how she never truly said no. Right as Julian realized he was pondering this a bit too long, Captain Benjamin Sisko stepped in between Dax and the good doctor before he could say a word. At 1800 hours, sensors detected activity in the wormhole and a ship emerged. It's a ship that we've never seen before, but we have determined it to be Dominion in origin. 
Sisko reported as he tapped a few controls to reveal the ship on the main viewer. The ship was a one-man fighter with a slim extended cabin and flared pink engines. It had two nacelles, one resting on top and one underneath instead of on the sides like most Federation starships. They were mounted on a long cylindrical hull that seemed to have the ability to spin the nacelles while the pilot would remain stationary. The pilot has sent us a message stating that he would only speak with you. Me? Julian asked confused. You? By name? Do you have any idea what this could be about? No, no, I've never seen that ship before in my life. What do we do now? We talk to him and find out why he's here. Sisko looked at Lieutenant Dax. Open hailing frequencies. Open. This is Captain Benjamin Sisko, commander of this station. We have Dr. Julian Bashir as requested. I would greatly appreciate if you would show yourself and state your business. As soon as the captain finished his thought, a gray face replaced the ship on the main viewer. Once again, Julian found himself fixed upon a striking set of eyes, except this pair was deep violet instead of Jadzia's royal blue. She had reptilian features with segmented skin that reminded Julian of a parched desert that had never seen rain. Small horns aligned around her jaw and crown. The alien had twin nodules in the center of her forehead that almost looked like purple jewels. Ornamentation? Or was this a natural occurrence for her species? It finally dawned on him. This was a Jim Hadar. Julian tried to remove the notion from his mind because they were told female Jim Hadar didn't exist. Of course, this wouldn't be the first time the enemy had lied to them. However, the ubiquitous tube delivering Ketracel White to the body was nowhere to be found. Perhaps the females of their species received it in another area besides the neck. Dr. Julian Bashir? The alien asked with a surprisingly soft tone. Uh, yes, that's, that's me. I'm sorry, you have me at a disadvantage. Have we met before? The doctor quipped with more overt charm than he originally intended. He could practically feel Dax's eyes roll behind him. No, we haven't, but you have met the one called Garanagar. Julian's memory raced with the mention of that name. Just a matter of months before, Chief O'Brien and he crash-landed on a planet where a Jim Hadar soldier was free of the Ketracel White addiction implanted by their creators to maintain loyalty. He had a group of deserters he was trying to help free from the addiction. The leader, named Garanagar, conscripted Julian to find a cure from the White for his men, based on his own physiology. It turned out Garanagar was a genetic anomaly, and it couldn't be applied to his men. Although, Julian wasn't even able to try, because Miles destroyed his research, forcing Julian to abandon his work and flee. Julian and Miles escaped, and the last they saw of Garanagar, he was shimmering off into the jungle to eliminate his men and relieve them of their withdrawal symptoms. I need your help. I have information that can be useful to you. War is coming. Sickbay was where Julian thrived, not just as a doctor, but as a leader. He graduated second in his class and was able to get a prime position considering how young he was. He wanted to practice frontier medicine. Deep Space Nine was the center of commerce and scientific exploration due to the wormhole to the Gamma Quadrant. This led to unique experiences that allowed him to be published and honored several times before he even turned 30. In the four years he was chief medical officer, he was able to distinguish himself above most others in his field, and especially among others his own age. The captain as well as chief of security Odo was in the room. The young, as yet to be identified female Jim Hadar was being examined by one of his nurses in a neighboring section. The man's hand was shaking as he waved the tricorder over her rough, shale-colored skin. 
Not many have stood this close to a Jem'Hadar warrior and lived. Thankfully, three of Odo's deputies were guarding the entryways. The captain and she came to an agreement that she could come aboard after a medical review to determine if she was a biological threat of any kind. What do we know? Captain Sisko inquired as he peered into the other room. Not much at this point, Captain. There's an epidermal layer so resilient that we can't gain a blood sample, and it's making our scans come back with inconclusive results, Julian huffed. After some adjustments, I was able to determine that she- She? She is indeed female. I thought that wasn't possible, Odo interrupted. The chief of security's smooth face always showed dissatisfaction. He had a matching voice that was so gruff that if he didn't finish a sentence with harumph, you would think something was wrong. Odo had a special connection with the Jem'Hadar. It was his own people, known in the Gamma Quadrant as the shapeshifting Founders, who engineered the race of super-soldiers. Along with an addiction to Ketrasol White, the Founders built in a disposition towards loyalty that resembled a religious fanatic. The Jem'Hadar literally referred to them as gods, and died for them as such. Odo had no previous connection with his people before a year ago, and once he found out that they ruled the Dominion, and engineered a race of assassins, he wanted nothing to do with them. Yes, Odo, she is female. At least as far as we can tell from a biological standpoint. Along with that, she has a muscle density I've never seen before in a humanoid. She's stronger than a human, a Vulcan, and even one of her male Jem'Hadar counterparts, Julian exclaimed. The doctor marveled at the level of biological and genetic engineering genius it would take to produce a specimen of this nature. Genetic engineering was something with which he had experience. Since genetic engineering was outlawed in the Federation, he couldn't share that experience with anyone. It would definitely help him decipher more about her, but for now, he had to keep certain things to himself. There is one anomaly with her DNA I have yet to be able to identify, Julian admitted. Such as? The captain inquired. Just as Sisko asked, there was a loud yell that echoed through the room, followed by a piercing crash of equipment. Julian jerked his head violently to see what happened and all he could gather was the nurse's nerves got the best of him. The female Jem'Hadar screamed again and pushed the nurse off of her, and he was sent flying to the other side of the room. His body slammed into a console so hard that he didn't fall down to the floor. He broke through halfway and sat crouched and hunched over several meters off the ground. Sparks flew with an all-too-familiar sizzle of a console exploding. It briefly illuminated the already bright room to an alarming degree. The three deputies covered their eyes instead of drawing their weapons at their own peril. Julian, Odo, and the captain were able to peer through the smoke and sparks just long enough to witness the female Jem'Hadar rise up from the table. At first what seemed like a trick played on the eyes because of the explosion was soon confirmed because it happened two more times. The officers witnessed her body blur and then dissolve onto the floor. It was as if she evaporated like spun sugar and water. As soon as she dematerialized, she rose back up in the same manner, but in a different location. She was behind one of the deputies as she took both her hands and slammed them simultaneously on his ears. The concussion of force and air made him black out immediately. She moved to the next security officer with the same adept skill, but this time in front of him. She grabbed his weapon out of his holster, snapped it in two, spun around, and struck him in the face with the broken pieces of his own phaser. With the momentum gained from her spin, she jumped in the general direction of the last remaining deputy. Though only a matter of seconds went by during this whole exchange from beginning to end, he was able to pull out his phaser from his holster. Through stinging eyes and sweaty palms, he was able to get a shot off. The beam never made contact with her. 
Instead, it hit the wall that was just behind her, leaving a black scorch mark in her absence. She phased just in time to avoid a phaser beam to the chest. The deputy heard a scream behind him, a high-pitched yet guttural scream that sounded like it came from deep inside her. He knew he didn't stand a chance, but he turned around anyway. She kicked herself off the wall behind him and elevated herself high enough to wrap her legs around his neck, causing a slight gagging sound from the security officer. She then rotated herself to use her own body weight, forcing him to plummet to the ground. In one swift motion, she rolled without ever stopping and was coming for the senior officers. Activate force fields! Captain Sisko screamed, and the computer obeyed so quickly that it seemed to be obliging out of fear. The slight blue shimmer of the force field twinkled with the confirming sound of an electric charge. There was now an invisible barrier between the three senior officers and the female Jim Hadar. She rose up from the ground and lost all her momentum as she slammed into the field. A blue static crackled in the areas she touched. Enough! The captain bellowed. In one last act of defiance, she screamed and pushed both hands into the force field. With slow determination and an unrelenting scream, she was able to push her arms through the field. The field seemed to bend to her will, leaving two gaping holes in the field where her hands once were. The entire field destabilized, and she just stood there. Odo moved forward and pushed the captain and the doctor behind him in an almost paternal manner. This isn't what- She could only get three words out before Odo struck her chin with a type of blow the two other officers had never seen before. His changeling arm morphed into something more solid than flesh and bone. He forced so much of himself into making a fist as dense as possible that he almost couldn't contain the rest of his shape. Odo wasn't that talented of a shapeshifter, but he could do what needed to be done in order to subdue her. The female Jemhadar spun so hard that her back was to the officers before she fell to the ground. The thud was grisly and definite. She was not getting back up. That must have been the DNA anomaly I couldn't figure out, Julian indicated cheekily. Last's eyes opened, and for a brief moment she forgot where she was. In her mind, she was back in her cell bolted to the floor, wondering when she was going to eat again, and if she was ever going to see a new color. But instead of the dark, she was in the light. This couldn't be her cell, but as she looked around, it was a cell regardless. She looked up and saw a man sitting there. It was Julian, the man she was looking for in the first place. He was sitting in a chair in the middle of the room. No one else was around him. No security guards, no shapeshifter. As she got up from her cot, she noticed there was nothing between them. No door or glass. She figured it must be another force field. She wondered if these beings would make the same mistake twice. Last reached out to find the invisible barrier. You won't get through it this time. That's a level 10 force field, Julian uttered as she pulled her hand back quickly. Why am I in here? She asked, fully knowing what the answer would be. Why? For starters, you destroyed my sickbay, not to mention the people you assaulted that now required services. This is not what I wanted. That's what I was trying to say before your changeling struck me. Changeling? Don't you mean God? He couldn't help but notice the disdain in her voice. Whenever he spoke with Jemadar in the past, they always expressed reverence for the founders and never discussed. He's no god of mine. She snapped. Her eyes darted around the space she was in. She couldn't seem to get her eyes to focus. Her breathing became erratic, and she was scared of losing consciousness again. You need to let me out of here, now. I don't think that's going to happen. We can't have a repeat of what happened in sickbay. Why don't you tell me what you came here to say, and then we can discuss letting you out. 
Julian uttered as he swore he could see her start to perspire. I cannot be in this cell anymore. You must let me out, and then, and only then, will I tell you what you need to know. Last said with less anger and more desperation. Julian noticed this, but was still bound by his orders to not let her out. I'm, I'm sorry, but I can't. You will! Now! She shrieked as she did earlier in sickbay. This burst startled the good doctor as he rose from his chair. Please. She whimpered. This intrigued Julian because he had never seen a Jem'Hadar plead before. He also had never seen one of them display clear signs of claustrophobia. If you cooperate, I'll see what I can do. He quietly informed her as he left the room. Last watched him leave, and she instantly felt more alone than she had in all that time in her cell. Not because she felt a kinship with him, but because she had no idea when he would be back to let her out. Once again, her destiny was in someone else's hands. Julian went through the doors as they opened for him. He heard the whoosh of them closing behind him as he saw Odo and Sisko looking into the monitors. There was a miniature version of the female Jem'Hadar on six screens from six different angles, and she looked desperate in all of them. A forlorn expression of anxiety on her gray face, silver loose-fitting armor that clearly wasn't made for her, tall black boots, and a grimy chain draped around her waist. I'm assuming you heard all of that? Julian said. Yes, we did. You don't actually think we're going to let her out of there, do you? Odo scoffed. It wasn't my first idea, but I don't know if we have another one. She won't talk otherwise. Plus, I've never seen a Jem'Hadar with claustrophobia before. We are not dealing with your average super soldier here, Bashir explained. You've got that right, Doctor. This is not your average Jem'Hadar. This is precisely why she needs to be kept in there, Sisko stated with finality. Captain, with all due respect, what is the point in keeping her in there at all if she isn't going to speak to us? She came to deliver a message, and if she is in there, she won't give it. Odo interjected. Maybe she already gave her message in sickbay. War is coming, now here is a taste. She came here specifically to speak to me. I want to know why, and I think both of you do as well. She is in pain, and I cannot abide that as a doctor. I'm sure my nurse just startled her being that close. I won't make that same mistake. Can we at least just let her out of the cell but lock the room? Julian asked desperately. The doctor wondered to himself if he would have tried to get her out as quickly if she were a male Jem'Hadar, or even if her eyes weren't as striking. All right, doctor. But I'm not just leaving you in there alone. Odo? The captain turned to look at the security chief. I'll stand right behind him, captain. I'll have my deputies be outside the door with their phasers drawn and a level 10 force field surrounding the room. After you? Odo motioned to Julian to lead the way. The doctor obliged as he saw the deputies start to move into place. He saw the determination in their eyes and their guns already drawn. They wouldn't make the same mistake as their predecessors. Julian walked back into the room and saw her standing with her back to him. We're letting you out, but only if you cooperate. Can you do that? Or will I need to intervene again? Odo taunted as he lowered the force field. She nodded and stepped out. Immediately, she felt better. The room felt expansive and even smelled better. Her eyes could focus, and she noticed that the doctor was smiling. Feel better? Julian asked. What do you mean? I noticed that you have a hard time with enclosed spaces. Hopefully this room is just a little bit better. What is your name? Last. Last. Is that your rank? No, it's my name. I gave it to myself. 
Odo scoffed loudly as she revealed that information. I didn't do it to please you. You don't like me very much, do you? Odo sneered. No, should I? She knew it was daring to speak like this to a changeling. If she did this where she was made, she would have been scrapped like the others regardless of her skill. But she had heard rumors of the defector, the shapeshifter who turned his back on his people. That's something that her and Odo shared, but trust would have to come first before information. It's just your predecessors usually see shapeshifters as gods, Odo lectured. Does that disappoint you? She sneered. I think you want it to, Odo said. The tension in the room was becoming palpable. Julian, for some reason, did not consider the negatives of having a changeling and a Jem'Hadar in the same room. He only thought it would be a way to get more information from her, but clearly this Jem'Hadar was different. Let's just stay calm, Julian pleaded. I think we can all agree that this is an odd situation. Last, you came here specifically for me. Let's start with that. How do you know me? I've never heard of a female Jem'Hadar, let alone met one. The doctor was desperately trying to use a calm tone. Some of that was out of fear for his safety after seeing what she did to his nurse, but also out of pity. As a medical professional, he'd been trained to notice pain and track where it comes from. This Jem'Hadar is showing a lot of pain. However, she might need a counselor more than a doctor. No, we have never met, but you have met Gurnagar. He is the one who helped me escape. Escape from where? Escape from the people who created me. I don't know where it is exactly. I wasn't in the best shape when Gurenagar rescued me. I believe it was on a space station. There are several of these breeding stations throughout what you call the Gamma Quadrant. But mine was different. Mine was focused on research and experimentation. The others were just factories for my dog-like brothers. Weak and dependent. She said with such disdain that it reminded Julian to ask about her addiction, or lack thereof. I noticed you don't seem dependent on Ketracel White. Was this an anomaly like Garanagar's? No, but it wasn't planned, either. The Vorta and the Changelings had no interest in developing an independent Jem'Hadar. But it was an unforeseen side effect of my phasing ability. The enzyme that the White produces became superfluous when my DNA was altered for this predisposition to spatial relocation. She stated with pride. That's a neat trick, by the way, Julian admired. That trick is the only reason why I'm still alive. My original name was GH1512. That's 1,511 Jem'Hadar before me who had this ability, and 1,509 of them died within hours of gestation. That leaves two not including you. Are there two others like you out there? Julian probed. I believe so. That's why I'm here. I thought you were here to tell us war is coming, Odo questioned. No, that is payment, she retorted. For? Julian inquired. For you helping me find my sisters. Last stated with immediate regret. She felt that she was giving away too much too fast, but what other choice did she have? Like it or not, she was yoked to these people. She could escape again, but where would she go? Who better to help her than a Federation doctor who feels himself morally superior to the Founders, and a Founders turncoat? Sisters? Odo said with surprise. You mean you're not the only female? Why are you female, by the way? Why are you male? Last cracked. You can shift into anything, and yet you choose a humanoid male. Why? Odo stood silently with his arms crossed. Julian interrupted. I think what Odo means is... 
The Dominion usually only makes male Jem'Hadar, and told us that's all they do. What makes you the exception to the rule, if I may be so bold? Of those 1,509 that died, all were male. They wasted all those lives before the scientists even considered switching the sex. Just to see, just to imagine what the difference would be. One day they altered the chromosomes, and it worked. She lasted much longer than ours. So they made another. And then me. Last practically whispered that final part. Where does Gurenegar come into all of this? Where is he now? Julian asked. Gurenegar survived his men where you last saw him. I don't know the whole story, but he was able to get off-world. He then dedicated himself to find others like him, free of the white. It was difficult for him to find others without being discovered. That might be why he never succeeded until he heard of me. He followed every rumor and passing phrase that hinted at a Jem'Hadar free of the white. When he found my complex and beat down the door, he had no idea that a woman would be on the other side. Gurenegar was kind to last, a trait not well known amongst other Jem'Hadar. When he heard rumor that there was a secret complex developing a new breed of Jem'Hadar, but they were free of the white, he didn't believe it. But it was the best lead he had in months, and he couldn't pass it up. Sector by sector, he searched with his small vessel, but he didn't mind. He was Jem'Hadar. He almost left the Garathi system when he picked up a faint signal. It was hiding deep in the rings of a nearby gas giant. Gurenegar got as close as he possibly could without being detected. It was definitely a Jem'Hadar breeding facility, but nothing like he had ever seen. A rotating diamond structure with five asymmetrical pylons jutting out in all directions. It was silver, but basking in the gold light emanating from the gas giant below, making it incredibly difficult to spot. According to rumor, this station has been isolated from the rest of the Dominion for quite some time. That meant that there was a strong chance his security codes would still be active. He knew that if he attempted this, no matter if he succeeded or failed, the Dominion would be aware of his existence, so this had to be worth it. He tapped his console, and with just a few gestures, his vessel was on its way toward the station. As he got closer, he entered in his security code to pass through the sensor net. 48923H2223POJ89 Delta. Denied. The negative notification practically screamed at him from his console. He entered it again. 48923H2223POJ89 Delta. Denied. Whenever a code was entered a third time unsuccessfully, the communicating vessel would be targeted and shot out of space. He could either try to run or risk having a ship destroyed by giving the wrong code again. Maybe the Dominion swapped out the codes more recently than he expected, or maybe it was something else. If this station is as old as he thought, maybe the minimum distance for code entry was much closer. Garenegar hit the boosters, held his breath, and tried one more time. 48923H2223POJ89 Delta. Accepted. The positive sounding ding brought on a sigh of relief. If Garenegar had sweat glands, they surely would have been active. He rotated his vessel 180 degrees to back into the docking port. Garenegar would need a hasty escape if this was to be successful, and every second counted. The connection of ship and station was firm, but quiet. As he walked over to the port, he entered a few commands, and he could hear the hiss of air being released into the vacuum. It finished with a final squeak, and then he opened the door. He immediately activated his camouflage and shimmered out of existence, at least to the naked eye. This would only be good for sneaking around for short periods. 
but he'd have to come back to the visible spectrum in order to attack. Hopefully, he wouldn't have to kill any of his brothers. They were only doing their duty, but his purpose was much higher than theirs. He would not hesitate if a decision needed to be made. That's why he was always first of whatever group he was in. He did not hesitate and showed no mercy in the face of his enemies. Garanagar witnessed three Vorta scientists walk by him, completely oblivious to his presence. They were snapping off their red gloves and reading from their pads, clearly coming from some sort of surgery or activity. He walked in the direction they were coming from. Every hallway was bare with very few consoles. This was incredibly foreign to him. Most Jem'Hadar stations had access ports every five meters, so that in the event of attack or catastrophe, a soldier would not have to go far to enter in commands. He was having a hard time finding his way. There were no barracks for the newborn Jem'Hadar. This was a massive facility, but there were no visible barracks. This station could house thousands of Jem'Hadar, but where were they? So far he had only noticed a few Vorda scientists and a few Jem'Hadar guards. He turned a corner and saw a long hallway. This was different than the constant winding and short corridors that he encountered previously. There were two guards at a door at the end of what seemed more like a tunnel than a hallway. This had to be where they were housing the experimental specimens, he thought. There was no way around it, though. He would have to kill the guards. The Jem'Hadar always said the same thing before they went into battle. As of this moment, we are all dead. We go into battle to reclaim our lives. This we do gladly, for we are Jem'Hadar. Remember, victory is life. Garenagar knew he wasn't killing them. He was only removing their victory from the equation. He started to walk towards them. The walk turned into a jog. The jog turned into a full-on sprint. His footfalls were so loud that the guards already knew something was coming. They armed their rifles, but it was already too late. Garenagar shimmered back into the spectrum and pulled out his Katarkin blade and in one swift motion slit the guard on the right's throat. Blood sprayed on the wall opposite him and momentarily blinded the other Jem'Hadar soldier. This was his only chance, and he did not hesitate. He buried his blade into the surviving guard's chest, and his opponent fell to the ground without a scream. No screams. No cries. Just soldiers doing their duty. The corridor lit up bright purple. The walls themselves became illuminated and pulsed with the newly introduced color. The stark contrast of such a vibrant color against a bland metallic gray was disarming at first because of how unexpected it was. The soldiers must have had a dead man's switch. As soon as the heart of the guard stops beating, it sets off an alarm. This wasn't standard, so whatever was behind this door must be incredibly important to the Dominion, or something they desperately wanted to keep secret. He instinctively shrouded himself again and began work on the door. None of his codes were working. He would have tried using the dead soldier's security cards, but if they had a dead man's switch, then that means their clearance was erased as soon as death occurred. He then did all that he had left to him. He hit it. He punched the door as hard as he could. Then he punched it harder. He kept punching until the metal of the door started to buckle. He kept punching until several bones broke and he was numb from pain. Garenegar looked at his work and realized he was almost there and knew that more soldiers would be coming. He kicked the door with more force than he had ever struck an enemy. The door flew in the direction he kicked so hard that he started to shimmer back to visibility. He looked down and saw a pathetic creature bolted to the floor. It was not what he expected. He was enraged immediately at the sight of her. Her. He couldn't believe it was a she. That's not why he was angry. He was furious at how a Jem'Hadar soldier was being treated, no matter the sex. He could immediately tell she was weak. He saw dinner plates, so she must need food. 
He made a note of that for later, if there would be a later. He had to hurry. Grenegar pulled his blade out of the dead man's chest and entered the room. He ripped the grimy chain she was attached to from the floor and scooped her up in his arms. Most of the chain was still attached to her, but he figured he could deal with that later. He rushed down the hall with the female in his arms. The warrior constantly changed direction and doubled back to avoid detection. This labyrinth of a station was not going to be circumvented by speed, but by cunning. He couldn't fight with a woman in his arms, so he had to avoid patrols as much as possible. The walls kept getting brighter and brighter. The alarms were illuminating his path and making it more difficult to hide in the shadows. Grenegar recognized where he was and turned the corner to find the path to a ship blocked by a solitary guard. They were only a few meters apart from each other. The guard raised his rifle to fire. There's no way he could set the female down in time and charge him. He thought this was it. He thought that he had failed himself. This female whose name he didn't even know. And all his other siblings free of the white who were waiting to be truly free. He didn't close his eyes. At that exact moment, his arms started to get lighter, and he didn't know why. He looked down and saw the female disappearing, almost dissolving. The guard stopped his attack and saw the vapor trail come from Garanagar's arms and entered his own chest. The guard dropped with a heavy clunk against the bulkhead. There was the female Jemadar standing behind the fallen soldier with his heart in her hands, and she was staring at it. I think this is my favorite color so far. That's how he saved me, Last said. Sounds like you saved him, Julian retorted. If only I had another opportunity, she added. For the first time, Julian noticed that she looked genuinely sad instead of angry or anxious. This was a loss for her. I was wondering if you were going to talk about why Garenegar wasn't here. We made it to his ship and got out of that sector. We hid for a month on a moon in the neighboring system. There was something in the atmosphere that obscured our signal. There he nursed me back to health, trained me in whatever ways he could, and even tried food for the first time. He didn't like it. The sadness melted away for a moment and was replaced by a quiet laugh, but soon the sadness returned. We got sloppy one day and didn't recharge our equipment in time. Our signature was unmasked and they found us. I got away, but he didn't. That's all you need to know. Before he died, he told me to find you, Dr. Julian Bashir, and he said you were a good man and that you would help me if you could. How can we help? Julian asked. More importantly, why should we help? It's a touching story, but I don't see how it concerns us, Odo jabbed. It concerns you because someday soon the Dominion will invade the Alpha Quadrant, and you will be left weeping. We've known of their plans for some time now. This is nothing new, Odo proclaimed. Did you know about me? Did you factor me into their plans? The longer they have my sisters, the more chances they have to figure out a way to mass-produce us. Imagine legions of us coming through the wormhole. You will not win, and you will not survive. Me. She said with warning. The door behind Odo and Julian opened, and Captain Benjamin Lafayette Sisko walked in with determination, purpose, and two security guards on either side of him. He stopped right in front of her and began to speak. What do you want? He asked with a calm yet commanding tone. There's a computer core on my ship that my companion stole from the Dominion. It's encrypted and I can't access it. It contains the locations of where they separated and took my sisters. I'm assuming it has a wealth of knowledge that could be useful to you. You assume? Odo said as he rolled his eyes. Lash shot him a glance that would have frightened lesser men. 
The captain didn't take his eyes off of hers. Listen here and listen good. You have been incredibly lucky thus far, but do not bank on it continuing. Your lucky Grenegar told you about Dr. Bashir because if it wasn't for him, you would still be in your cell. She winced. You're lucky I'm in a forgiving mood after what you've done to my men and my sickbay. I want that core, and you want your sisters. I will get my chief of operations to work on that encryption, and you will help. If at any point I think you are trying to alert your people as to where you are, or if at any point I see you start to... phase, I will jettison you out into space. Is that clear? Benjamin growled as he got louder and louder towards the end. Yes. Who is your chief of operations? Chief Miles O'Brien. Last shot a look at Julian. Isn't he the one who destroyed your research that would have helped Grenegar and the Jem'Hadar when you crash-landed? Sadly, yes, but- Then I refuse to work with him. Last uttered and stared down Sisko. The captain stared back, stepped closer, and replied slowly, Too bad. One of the cog-shaped doors of the promenade rolled away to reveal Chief O'Brien standing there with an engineering kit in his hand. Staring at him was Julian, Last, and two security guards standing behind them. O'Brien was briefed by Julian and Sisko prior to this meeting, so he was well aware of the tension that was waiting for him. Lass couldn't believe her eyes when she saw him. This was not the type of man she was expecting to meet. After hearing stories from her companion about his encounter with the humans, she didn't expect the man who destroyed the Ketchersell White research to have kind eyes and soft features. Regardless of what he looked like, Lass was not happy about this process. She felt like she could burst at any moment. Whether it was from anger or nerves or completing her mission, she didn't know. Either way, she did not like the arrangement into which she was forced. She just kept saying to herself, What choice do I have? All I want to do is help, so let's get to work and figure this out, O'Brien said as he motioned to the upper pylon where last ship was docked. The five of them all gathered on the lift, and not a word was said the entire ride up to the top of the pylon. Julian was hoping that the two of them could work together, because both Last and Miles were needed to complete this mission. But a rifle in the back is a poor motivator when you can phase through it. They made it to the top, and the door slid open with a whisper. They entered as the guards instructed Last to go first. Julian assumed this was to make sure no one was waiting for them inside the ship. They all made their way in, and the door closed behind them with the same faint sound. Last ship was small, with a curved bulkhead where the pilot seat was. Dual panels on the left and right, with one center console jutted out to cover the pilot's legs. Behind the con was a cot and a makeshift kitchen that clearly was not a part of the original design. Julian assumed that was the trade-off for phasing. Most Jem'Hadar didn't have to eat or sleep. For one person, this would be enough space, but not five. The core is in the back and to the right. He had to integrate it into the ship's own computer core so that it wouldn't shut down in a race. Once you decrypt it, you should have no problem transferring the information over to your systems. She promised. Okay, after you, Miles said as he waited for her to move. Last hesitated. I think you'll do fine. I can wait out here if you have any questions. I need you in there with me. I know it's cramped, but it will take twice as long to decrypt because I don't know the system as well as you. You'll need to guide me. If you don't... The computer will have that much more of a chance of figuring out what we're doing and shut down, the chief explained. I know this is hard. I could tell right away you weren't okay with confinement or small spaces, but don't worry. The chief will be with you, and I will be right out here. You are not alone, Julian said without cheek, without pretense, and with complete sincerity. Guards, can you please wait by the door? He asked. The guards looked at each other and didn't move. That's an order. 
Julian added. He was so rarely able to say that. We can do it together, if you wish. It's up to you, Miles proposed. For my sisters. Last declared. Miles opened his toolkit and had to slide on his back to get to the exposed circuitry of the computer core. He shimmied his shoulders back and forth in order to move the few inches needed to reach. Last moved with him, and they had to be shoulder to shoulder. There was just enough room for two people underneath, if that. Hand me the diagnostic coupler, he asked, and she obliged. Can I reroute the secondary bypass in order to gain access to the redundant memory? He moved his device closer. No, don't do that. If you do, the memory will seize. Try going through the primary memory. It's not as safeguarded because most thieves go for the back doors first. That's why you're here, Chief O'Brien reiterated. The chief looked over and could tell that Lass was visibly shaken. She couldn't focus and started breathing too heavily. Hey, how, uh, how are you doing over there? I don't know if I can stay. I need to leave. Last rushed her words with a panic and she started to maneuver out. Listen, you can't go now. I've already started. If I stop now, we will never be able to get back in. It's going to be fine. I'm here with you. I spent years in a dark room with nothing but the occasional inspection to keep me company. You have no idea what that's like. Actually, you're talking to the one person on the station who might understand what you're going through, Chief O'Brien revealed. He kept working. What do you mean? I spent 20 years in a jail cell for a crime I didn't commit. Some of the time I was with someone, and some of the time I wasn't. That's all you need to know. My freedom was stripped away, and they tried to strip me of my humanity as well. A few times they succeeded. I was taken from my wife and my little girl for 20 agonizing years. It turns out it was just a few hours. I don't understand. Memory implants. It wasn't real. It was all in my head. But that didn't make the memories any less painful. When I got out, I was a different person. I hallucinated, I assaulted people I cared about. I couldn't do my job. And I almost ended it all, until a friend stopped me. O'Brien admitted as he tried to see if Julian was listening. If I would have given up, if I would have killed myself, I would have let my captors win. So you what, just forgot about it? Oh no. It's with me every day. Hand me that stem bolt. You can't forget tragedy. Nor should you, really. It's a part of who you are, whether we like it or not. What helped you? She said as she handed him the stem bolt. I can't believe I'm going to admit this, but talking... Talking helped. Did you ever talk with Garenagar about this? That's between me and him. I apologize. I, I didn't mean to intrude. He went back to work. A few silent moments passed between them. It did help, though. She disclosed. Miles noticed that she stopped breathing so heavily. You know, you don't have to leave the station as soon as we're done here. You can stay for a while. A loud noise halted their conversation. Miles triggered an alarm and the noise was filling the small space they were in. Okay, I damaged the memory buffer. A flash of rotating symbols appeared. What is that? O'Brien pointed. That's new. That looks like a countdown. Something like 75 seconds. A countdown to what? I don't know. Most likely to when the core will erase itself. Can you stop it? 60 seconds. The chief took a quick scan of the core with his tricorder. He noticed that the power supply was becoming increasingly unstable as time counted down. Did Garanagar ever mention how the core would erase itself? O'Brien questioned. She replied with a simple head shake. My guess is that it explodes. <laughs> Pretty effective if you ask me. You have to fix it! No, we have to go. Julian, get out of here! What? 
Julian responded ignorant to what was going on because he couldn't hear over the alarm. We need to get this done. I won't get another chance. 45 seconds. O'Brien looked over to her and could tell she was desperate. He tapped his comm badge. O'Brien to ops. Eject last ships from the pylon and tractor it out as far as you can. He yelled loud enough for his comm badge to register his vocal patterns. What the hell is going on up there? Cisco roared. Please, sir, just do it and keep a transporter lock on us and wait for my signal. Miles knew that a lock would be tricky with this type of interference. Julian, you in or out? What? I guess he's in, O'Brien muttered. He heard a loud clang followed by a soft thud as he felt the release of the docking clamps. 30 seconds. There is still an auxiliary bypass. I need you to access it. Why me? She said as she started to gulp the air around her. I can't reach over you and we're running out of time. We only have a few seconds before this core explodes and we all die. Last stared at the console in front of her, breathing so hard she was fogging the instruments. Just take one singular moment and breathe normally. Match mine. Listen. Listen! In through the nose and out through the mouth. 20 seconds. In through the nose and out through the mouth. Last repeated and enacted as she continued to work. She thought of her sisters. She wanted to see them again. She would do anything to see them again. Knowing they were in a space like the one she was in right that second gave her laser focus. She would not have them wait another moment alone in the dark. She grabbed the tool from Miles, accessed the bypass, and tapped a few critical commands on the console. Five seconds. The alarm stopped. They both breathed a sigh of release simultaneously. I think your sisters would be proud, O'Brien concluded. Last gave him a smile, something for which she rarely had occasion. Julian popped his head in. What did I miss? A few days later, after the data download was complete, Julian, Miles, and Last were standing outside her ship in the upper pylon docking bay. Are you sure we can't get you to stay a couple more days? Julian asked. I still need to teach you how to do an Asika. It helped me get through some tough times. No, but thank you. I need to get going. I made a promise to myself that I wouldn't make my sisters wait a moment longer. Now that I know where they are, it's only a matter of time until I get them out. Are you sure you should go in alone? Julian pondered out loud. I won't be for long. Last confidently quipped before turning around and entering her ship. She turned around one last time and waved before the doors closed. The locks made a thunderous release that echoed throughout the chamber. Do you think we'll ever find out if she pulled it off? Miles asked. Well, if we never see her kind again, that's probably our answer. Well, that's definitely a first for literary treks. I, I gotta say, bringing original Star Trek fiction to our listeners. How cool is that? I, I love it. I, I thought there wasn't a better way to celebrate, you know, f 150 episodes of this show than by doing something completely original, mm -hmm. something that nobody has heard before, and uh, to, to bring it to the listeners in a way that we've just never had the opportunity to do. And so I, I really got to thank you, Tristan, for sharing your story with us in this way and going through the work of putting together, you know, an audiobook version of it and, and allowing that to be premiered here on Literary Treks. Well, no, thank you for giving me the opportunity and the kick in the pants to do it. It was uh, 
something that I've always wanted to do, but I'm just so lazy that unless I have a deadline, you know, like in, unless I have somebody telling me, oh, it needs to be submitted at this time, it's probably not going to get done. So I appreciate you, uh, you know, helping me with that. And um, just as a, a side note, just because I, I, <laughs> I, I want people to, to realize just how huge of a geek I am. Uh, the music that you heard in there was all from Deep Space Nine. And it was all from the first episode and the last episode. And I did that on purpose because of the name of the short story. <laughs> oh, very cool. That's awesome. I love I love little tidbits like that. That's awesome. <laughs> well, before we let you go, Tristan, uh, let everybody know, one, where they can find the story to read online. And then, of course, where they can find you and uh, pester you about, you know, writing more Star Trek stories for them to read. Well, you can find me online at the Insane Robin uh, on on Twitter at Twitter. Uh, that's the, probably the best way to get a hold of me. And uh, the story, if anybody anybody who wants to read it can read it at thenerdparty.com. Uh, just go to thenerdparty.com, and from there you can click other in the menu and then hit start. It's it's called Strange New Rejects. And uh, what I did was is that I I put out a call to online and in a couple different forums and said, hey, if you submitted. A, uh, a short story to Strange New Worlds and got rejected, send me, uh, send me a copy and I'll post it on the website. And a few people did, a handful of people did. And so if you're hearing my voice and you submitted something to Strange New Worlds, uh, contact me at contact at thenerdparty.com. From there, uh, email me your story and I'll put it up on the website, send you the link, and you can share it with your friends and your family and uh, and whomever. I, and I know there are a lot of fan fiction websites out there. I, I, I know that. Like there, there are tons of places to post your story, but I really just wanted to create a one-stop shop for people who submitted specifically to Strange New Worlds. So from there, you can find it, and uh, you can also, you can find me on the network at Trek.fm with To The Journey, which we've mentioned a couple times, with uh, my brilliant co-host, Charlene Schmidt, where we talk about Star Trek Voyager, and all its glory, and how it's amazing, and way better than any other series out there. And uh, also, you can find me on the Nerd Party Network, and uh, you heard the girl in this uh, audio recording. You can hear her again on uh, a show that I love doing called Nerd Nuptial, where we look at uh, nerd life through a married lens. And uh, that's, it's, it's just so much fun doing this show. I really want you guys to, to check it out. I, and it's, uh, it's just a, it's, it's a great time. And uh, it's, uh, we've been getting a lot of great fan response. I think a lot of people have been really tuning into it. And you can also find me on the Senate floor, which is also on the Nerd Party Network. That's a general geek podcast. And uh, we love our reviews and our top five lists. And uh, you can also find Aggressive Negotiations on the Nerd Party Network, which is a Star Wars podcast. Yeah. Somebody that I know does that. Uh, John Mills. That that guy's great. That guy. Yeah. Yeah. I love that guy. Well, I'm, you know, I got to say, I'm so excited that we get to do this here on Literary Treks. And it's really all because of the associate producers that we have here through Patreon. Uh, we've got Ken Tripp, Brandon Shamatullah, and Bruce Gibson, who support the network through Patreon, and that allows Literary Treks to come to you for over 150 episodes. we got 150 episodes now, guys. Yeah. So uh, if you'd like to make sure that Trek FM's content keeps coming to you, see how you can become part of our team. Uh, we are listener-supported, so we need your help. Without you, there's just no way we can make this happen. So go to patreon.com slash trek fm and you can see how 
it's so important for listeners to get involved in this way. Um, we love the fact that you have and that so many of you do. Everybody who hasn't, check it out. Even the littlest bits per month can, can really help us out. So thank you so much to all you who have already and all you who will. Again, that's patreon.com slash trekfm. Of course, uh, we're all over the place. You can find us on Twitter at trekfm, Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. You can send us an email, go to trek.fm slash contact, choose literary treks, that'll come to Dan and I. Of course, you can go to speedpipe.com slash trekfm and leave us a voicemail. Love getting those. Uh, we also have the listeners-only discussion group, the Babel Conference on Facebook. Just type Babel into the search field there on Facebook. It'll lead you right there. And we also have our Goodreads group. If you're on Goodreads, just search Literary Tracks. It's a great place. You can see all the bookshelves of the things we're reading, everything that's coming up. We've got some fun discussions going on there. So all amazing places to check us out. And we've got amazing places for Dan to check us out. Now, Dan, when you're you're not running away from, you know, uh, Jim Hadar trying to save female Jim Hadar for, you know, being extinct because they just don't like them anymore. Where can we find you? Well, when I get a chance to take a breather from that, you can find me posting on Twitter. My handle there is at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. Uh, you can find me on YouTube. I have a new channel there, Kurtrats Productions. Uh, you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Productions, and of course, kicking around the Babel Conference, talking about all things Star Trek, and on my website, treklit.com, where I talk about Star Trek novels, both old and new, kind of like we do here on the show. And uh, Matthew, when you're not enjoying a chill game of darts and talking about your feelings and quarks, where can we find you? Uh, well, you can find me hanging around on that thing called Twitter, uh, MattRushing02. Um, I might take a picture every once in a while on Instagram, MRushing. Uh, you can also find me doing the orb here on the network with Chris Jones talking about the best Star Trek show, Deep Space Nine. That's right, even Tristan Riddell writes about it. Uh, you can also find me doing the 602 Club, which is our general geek show. Bruce joins me there a lot. Uh, we've got so many people around that Tristan was just on the show. It's a great place to talk about all the fandoms we love that are outside of Star Trek. So come join us at the 602. Have a drink from Ruby and, and grab a chair. It's, it's a great place to be. And then I do. I do this little tiny show called Aggressive Negotiations about Star Wars with an amazing man named John Mills. Uh, and it's on the Nerd Party Network, and it's all about Star Wars. So I hope that you will check that out. Uh, now, Bruce, when you're not trashing, uh, you know, uh, Julian's infirmary because you're just really mad about his treatment of you and you know where can we find you you can find me looking for all you guys in all these places that you're naming there's just so many places everybody's at so i can be found on twitter at admiral underscore rex and you can find me occasionally doing things over at starwarsreport.com and sometimes you will find me in the babel conference i'm often there well we just want to say Thank you so much for joining us for 150 episodes. And until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one.